15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, and thank you for joining us. Welcome. This is Space Nuts, episode 282. So good to have your company once again. My name is Andrew Dunkley. I'm your host. And this week, we're going to be looking at a new iron planet. Uh, it's a planet in a hurry, this thing, and uh, it is orbiting a, uh, a dwarf star, I believe. Uh, quite a discovery. Uh, and of course, uh, being made of iron, there's only one person who could possibly live there, and that's Iron Man. Uh, we will also be uh, looking at uh, the discovery of a new kind of binary star. Now, th this is an interesting story in that uh, up until now it's been theory, but now what they thought existed turns out to exist. So that's that's quite uh, wonderful. So we'll talk about that. And we've got questions about a deep space probe, uh, not the one that your doctor is talking about giving you, but uh, a deep space probe and a, um, uh, a question about angular momentum. So I've already got my uh, ibuprofen to deal with the headache that that's going to cause. Uh, all coming up on Space Nuts today. Joining me, as always, is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Good to see you again, old chap. Good to see you too. How have you been? <laughs> oh, all right, thanks. Yeah. yeah. A few things going on, but um, we're okay here. Well, it's better than having nothing going on. Yes. One, one thing I, I cannot stand is boredom. I, I'm one of these people that's really fidgety and I need something to do all the time. And and you know, people say to me, why don't you just have a rest and have a bit of a snooze in the afternoon? No way. I hate wasting daylight. <laughs> Sleeping you can do at night. Well, no, I don't do that very well either. Now, Fred, we've got a lot to talk about. So let's move on to our very first topic about this uh, little planet uh, made of pure iron and it is moving at uh, a rate of knots. Yep, its name is GJ367b, <laughs> and it's in the constellation of Vela, which is a Southern Hemisphere constellation, uh, which um, is very prominent in our skies uh, here in Australia. Uh, so we, what we're talking about here is a discovery by TESS, the uh, Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, um, and you'll remember, Andrew, that the way TESS discovers planets is by staring at uh, patches of space. In fact, it, it's done a, quite a lot of the sky. Uh, staring at patches of space and looking for stars whose brightness dips very slightly to reveal a planet transiting across the disk of the star. You can't see either the planet or its transit across the disk. All you see is the, the light uh, of the star diminishing by a tiny, tiny fraction usually. But our um, measurements these days are so precise that it's possible to, you know, to, to determine that. Um, the uh, so that that gives you uh, 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 first of all it tells you there's a planet there when you register these dips. Uh, second thing it tells you is how fast the planet is orbiting around its parent star. And this one uh, it goes around once in 
uh, it's just under eight hours, I think. <laughs> so, Blimey. and that's its year. Uh, its year is eight hours. Um, so you could get very old very fast on this plane. Yeah, that's right, indeed. Uh, well, you might just because it's such a peculiar place. So it, it, that tells you it's close to its parent star, which, by the way, is a is a red dwarf star. Mm. It's about thirty light years away. I don't know whether I mentioned that. Um, but uh, okay, so so what what you also get from the the transit observations is the diameter of of the planet um, because you uh, you 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 know the diameter of the star. We we know star diameters pretty well, and we can tell that from their their spectra um, and their colours essentially. Uh, so uh, once you know the diameter of the star, and you know kind of the, the details of the the dip in the planet's light as they sorry the star's light as the planet goes across uh, that actually lets you measure the, uh, the 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 essentially the diameter of the star uh, oh, sorry the diameter of the planet I beg your pardon yeah. <laughs> should think about this shouldn't I before I open my mouth um, but then what you do is you go and do some ground based observations with bigger telescopes than tess um, and in fact, the instrument that was used to do the follow-up observations was one that's well known to uh, to, to uh, people who study these exoplanets. is an instrument called HARPS, which stands for High Accuracy Radial Velocity Planet Searcher. Uh, it's down in Chile. Uh, it uh, is operated uh, by the European Southern Observatory uh, on their 3.6-metre telescope, if I remember rightly. So that uh, that lets you, the high-accuracy radial velocity planet searcher, what that lets you do is measure the wobble of the star caused by this planet going around it. And once you've done that, you can... You, you can deter, determine the planet's mass. So yeah. what you've got is the mass and the radius of the planet, and um, it's all been done very precisely. Uh, the um, you know the, the, the measurements are quite exquisite in their precision, uh, but uh, what the mass and the radius give you, of course, is the density because uh, the radius gives you the volume, density is mass per unit volume, and so what the these scientists have established is that the density of this object is uh, rather more than eight. Uh, let me just get the number up because they've got a pretty accurate. Yeah, this is in the old units of grams per cubic centimetre, which I know and love. Uh, 8.106, that is the density of this planet. And that's much more than uh, the Earth. And significantly, Andrew, much more than Mercury, which is a highly dense planet that we think uh, has its high density because most of it is an iron core. Um, and the thinking is that Mercury was well on its way to being a normal planet with a with an iron core caused by the molten iron sinking gravitationally to to its centre, um, and a rocky mantle. But the rocky mantle might well have been blown off in a collision with another object. That's how we think Mercury got to be the small world it is, even though it's got a giant-sized core. And the thinking now is that maybe uh, this strange world uh, with its eight-hour year has had the same phenomenon. Um, 
we 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 just we just don't know there's not enough known about this world yet to to really hypothesize but that seems the most likely thing to get a world that is almost pure iron which the density is revealing uh tells you that uh, there's not much else there um and uh you know maybe that iron core formed along with a with a rocky mantle uh, like we have on the earth but the uh, you know something collided with it probably in the early days of that solar system, knocked off the, the mantle, and you've got what, imma- what amounts to an iron planet. Now, one of the uh, things that is um, perhaps, uh, uh, sorry, another additional piece of information about this world, which is one of the things that makes it even less hospitable than, than an iron world might otherwise be, is because it's close to its, its parent star, um, it is... But it's very hot. Uh, so yeah. its temperature is probably uh, 1,500 or so degrees Celsius. That means it's actually hot enough to melt iron. So maybe on Gosh. on the day side of that world, you get lakes of, of molten iron. Who knows? Um, but the night side, of course, because this is one of these worlds that's uh, tidally locked to its parent star, so it it rotates in the same speed as it revolves around this uh, in the same length of time as it revolves around the star eight hours. Uh, that means that the the dark side is permanently the dark side, and it's probably absolutely freezing uh, mm. on the dark side. A really really weird sort of place. Um, very hard to get your head around it, but that's yeah. what these measurements tell us. So it's it sounds like it's very much a a larger Mercury type planet. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we want to compare it to something local, do we know why it would be orbiting so fast? Uh, no, um, and you know that's it's one of the interesting aspects of um, of of solar system. Uh, if I can put origin theories, um, is that we we now see such a range of different solar systems uh, in in the you know in in terms of the exo worlds when when we look at the solar systems of other stars they come in a complete range of them um, yeah. and so lots of uh, theoretical work has been done on how you get solar systems that can look so different and one of the things that seems likely to have happened and probably happened in our solar system as well is that planets over long, long periods of time actually migrate uh, backwards and forwards within those solar systems. And, mm. you know, this this little world that we're talking about, it, it orbits so fast because it's so close to its parent star. The, the two things are inextricably linked. Uh, the nearer you are to your parent body, the faster you orbit. Um this it may well be that it was formed further out in that solar system, and it may also be Andrew that there are other planets in that solar system that we haven't yet detected. Um, you know, one with an with a with an eight hour uh, period around its world is is relatively easy to detect because you don't have to observe it for very long to see these regular dips in its um, in it, in it, in the star's brightness and you know that there's a planet going around uh, really very rapidly uh, but with something maybe at the distance of Jupiter from the earth then you've got to wait a long time before you see uh, progressive dips so didn't, it, didn't we discover one recently where uh, it was like a hundred years or something before it Transits again, so yes, to actually 
confirm it because you've got to get more than one transit, don't you? Yes, that's right. So I think it, it was um, was it seventy six years, if I remember rightly. Yeah, so and we've got so to wait that long. That, that's still a that's still a planet that's hypothesised. So it, you know you can't make it a certainty. But this yeah, this world is. Um, it's it's interesting. It's a bit of a record breaker. Uh, I don't think it has the record for the highest density exoplanet ever discovered, but it's very close to it. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it, it is it is pretty uh, pretty extraordinary in it in all its um, you know in all, all its attributes. So um, very much on the on the cusp of being a record breaker. Mm. Now, uh, you say it was initially discovered by TESS. Uh, I understand that the purpose of TESS is to try and find Earth-like planets, and so it's it's found this one. Um, why are we so focused on Earth-like planets? Is it because of the potential for life, or we just want to find planets that are, are like ours to see how many are out there? Uh, yeah, all of the above, really. Um, I mean, it, it comes about partly historically, Andrew, because the first... Uh, planets that were discovered beyond the solar system uh, initially, the, the you know there was a huge tranche of planets discovered by the what's called the Doppler wobble method, uh, and the Doppler wobble is the one that that we mentioned in connection um, with with this little planet. Uh, the, the 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 way it works is uh, that you look for the movement of a star that's induced by the planet orbiting around it. There's a wobble of the star itself. Um, and that is uh, basically that, you know, slants you towards higher mass planets. So very much the, the, the planets that were discovered early on in our knowledge of exoplanets were the big ones, the Jupiter-like planets and bigger yeah. still. Um, and so it, it turned out that the Doppler wobble method is actually not a good method for discovering Earth-like planets because, or, you know, Venus planets or Mercury planets because mm. they don't wobble their star as much because they're less massive, they're smaller. Uh, but the transit method is good at, determine, at, uh, at revealing them <clears throat> because um, you, you can actually measure things smaller than the Earth by the transit method. So that was, you know, one of the reasons why TESS was built to follow up actually on the work of Kepler, which was another transiting exoplanet, uh, the first uh, one that did did this sort of work, the first um, satellite that, that did exoplanet transit measurements um, and, and reaped a really rich harvest, which is why TESS was followed up. But yes, of course, uh, you know, the basis of your question is right. We're interested in Earth-like planets because we live on one. Uh, yes. We want to know how many there are out there and maybe, you know, whether there are others that might support life. Yeah, I, actually, it surprises me, but ours is very much like Earth. It's extraordinary, isn't it? The resemblance is really quite striking. Mm. Yes, yes. I, I suppose something else that's come out of all of this, and you, and you touched on it, uh, and that is that uh, there is no typical solar system. Yeah, it that, seems like they're, they're just all so variable. That's right. Yeah, we, you know, we spent hundreds of years thinking that well, solar systems must all be like ours. If there are any, we didn't even know whether there were any others. Yeah. Now we do. We know that there are, and they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, um, which has stretched. You know, it stretched the the minds of the people who build models as to how solar systems form, because you've got to try and accommodate all these different sorts of uh, morphologies, the way you know the, the shape of the solar systems, the way they look. 
Interesting. Well, yeah, stuff. we've had to we've had to learn to uh, think differently because uh, yep. some circumstances are almost inexplicable. And I remember when they first discovered gas giants orbiting close to the sun, uh, yes. to their respective stars. People yep. went, how can, how can that be? How can that happen? <laughs> yeah, the hot Jupiters, that's right. Mm, yep. It's extraordinary. Well, uh, yeah, there'll be more to discover, and uh, TESS is a pretty exciting project, so we, we, uh, we will probably be talking about uh, other things that it discovers in the not-too-distant future. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Now let's take a little break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now I just want to clear one thing up initially. We've had a bit of a social media post about the price of the deal. Uh, and I've done a bit of research because a few people have thought that they were being overcharged. But uh, the fact of the matter is that Nord advertises its prices on its website in US dollars, Great British pounds and euro. So when you're looking at the link that we're going to give you, it will be in US dollars, not Australian dollars. Therefore, there'll be a conversion. So you might have to just uh, do the conversion to see what the Australian price will be. Of course, that fluctuates greatly and the money market has a big effect on that. So just bear that in mind when you look at this deal. Even so, it is still an excellent deal. You are still getting a fabulous price for a quality product, and that's NordVPN. Now, NordVPN is endorsed by a, a lot of uh, great organisations and websites, even the BBC, Forbes magazine, Huffington Post, all look at Nord as the top of the tree when it comes to virtual private network security. Now, if you are worried about hackers, you don't want your bank details stolen, you don't want people looking at what you're looking at online, or you just want the security of knowing that you have got a very solid wall between you and anybody else who might want to touch your stuff or get into your systems or steal your passwords or empty your bank account, or if you just want to log on to the internet and watch something overseas that's geo-blocked, a VPN service is the way to go. You won't get anything better or faster than NordVPN. Now, as a Space Nuts listener, you do get a very special deal. For a limited time, 73% off a two-year plan. For this holiday season deal, go to nordvpn.com slash spacenuts. Use the code spacenuts to get up to 73% off your NordVPN plan, plus a bonus gift. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it is a fabulous system that will secure your internet browsing. So go and have a look at it, nordvpn.com slash spacenuts. Check it out and hit the grab the deal button to take advantage of this fabulous offer from NordVPN, our sponsor, as a Space Nuts listener. Now, back to the show. Roger, and you're live, sir, here also. Space Nuts. Now, I'm often banging on about uh, people becoming patrons, which you can do via our website. Just hit the support Space Nuts button at spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. But... Got some news. There's something new on our supporter page. Now, you can become a patron through Patreon or Supercast, and there are 30-day trials. If you don't like it, you can get out, uh, and you can decide what you want to put into the kitty once a month. You can also make one-off donations through PayPal, but we've brought in something new. There's a Buy Me A Coffee link. You click on the Buy Me A Coffee link, and that's it. You're basically making a donation to the show to the value of a cup of coffee. So if you can go without coffee just once, 
to support Space Nuts, you can do that uh, via our uh, supporter page, spacenutspodcast.com. Click on the support Space Nuts link. Everything you need to know is there. And if you want to uh, just make a one-off donation to the show, uh, you can do that or you can go um, the whole hog and become a fully-fledged patron. It's totally up to you and I'll leave it at that. Now, Fred, let's uh, move on to our next topic. And that is, uh, this is a really interesting story. This is about a, a binary star. Now, most people think of binary stars as two independent stars orbiting each other, you know, being friendly. Uh, but there's been a, a kind of binary star that up until now has only existed in theory. But what's really exciting is they've now found one. <laughs> they found, tw- I think they found 21 of them, actually. Oh, which 21? Is, yeah. Um, let me... Is that what they Symbol means. Uh, oh, that's true, <laughs> no, no, they've. they've no, b- 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 you're absolutely right. What they've done is found examples of this class of stars that has uh, basically. Um, actually, uh, uh, let me correct myself. Um, it's thirteen of them. <laughs> ah. um, uh, because the number keeps going down. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get. We'll oh, get. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it, it's, but, but you're absolutely right. The point is that these this class of stars actually exists. That's what this is all about, and that means that yes, they have found one and more than one. So what we're talking about here, Andrew, are things called uh, ELM or ELM, uh, which I like rather a lot. Um, with white dwarfs, ELM white dwarfs, or ELM white dwarfs. ELM stands for extremely low mass white dwarfs. Uh-huh. And uh, we know a lot about white dwarf stars, and we recognise where whereabouts they fall in the sort of evolutionary pattern of stars, and it's pretty near the end. Um, and in fact, the sun will eventually become a white dwarf star when it um, when it, it runs out of hydrogen fuel. Uh, its atmosphere will expand, but its core will contract uh, to this what's called state of electron degeneracy. That's how you define a white dwarf. It means that only the electrons are, 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 are preventing the thing collapsing into a, um, a neutron star. So um, white dwarfs are typically the size of the Earth, uh, but with the mass of a star or a significant fraction of the mass of a star. And that's your average white dwarf. And they're, um, you know, they're very, very prolific throughout the sky. We see them everywhere, uh, and we know how they're formed. They're ancient, normal stars. But there is this class of uh, of white dwarfs whose masses are very, very low, less than a third of the mass of the sun, in fact. And the, the, the reason why this has been a puzzle is that if you think about... Um, you know, a white dwarf like what the sun will be become, uh, how that evolves beyond, uh, you know, uh, during its white dwarf phase, if I can put it that way, beyond the, the normal life of the star, you've got the white dwarf formed, and then that continues to evolve, and typically they lose mass. Um, and the conundrum has been, I'm sorry, I'm probably not making this very clear, but the conundrum has been that to get down to about two-thirds of, or a third of the mass of the sun, in other words, to being an ELM, uh, an extremely low-mass white dwarf, to do that, uh, you need more than the age of the universe uh, for the, the mass to leak away. Um, and, the, you know, you can't have white dwarf stars that are older than the universe uh, because that's you know, a bit of a problem. Um, 
so one of the um, actually it's a nice call, a nice quote from uh, uh, from one of the uh, authors of this work. Uh, Karim El-Badri, uh, who's used te- the telescope, the big telescope at Lick Observatory, which I've visited in the past. Um, uh, uh, Karim says, the universe is just not old enough to make these stars by normal evolution. And so you've got to have another method. And the method that has been proposed, <clears throat> excuse me, is that if you get a white dwarf uh, as a member of a binary system, in other words, you've got uh, another star, a companion star. The two are orbiting around their common centre of gravity, and that is a common s- scenario. Uh, but in this case, uh, the other star is near enough to the white dwarf that it can suck off material from it. Um, oh, it yeah. sort of eats away at the white dwarf until it becomes an ELM white dwarf. Uh, so that's that is what has been hypothesized and what has now happened is that these things have actually uh, been observed uh, and it's using actually data from gaia you know that fantastic european space agency spacecraft that's measuring the the directions of stars to to millionths of an arc second um, mm. and actually there is another telescope involved as well something called the zwicky transient facility which runs on a telescope that's actually a twin of our schmidt telescope at siding spring observatory here in australia um so they they looked for evidence of these things uh, and they followed they followed up uh, the the binary systems using the Shane telescope at Lick Observatory and to, to cut a long story short they uh, basically have uh, identified stars that were losing mass to a companion white dwarf um, uh, sorry the, the white dwarf that is losing mass to a companion star. Okay. I got it the wrong way around. Um, so that's uh, – it's actually back to this 21 number that we started off with. And kind of 21 is is right. Uh, of, of that, 13 showed signs that the white dwarfs were still losing mass to the companion. Uh, mm. But the other eight seemed no longer to be losing mass, but they were all ELM white dwarfs. They were all extremely low mass. Um, and they also discovered that – uh, they had higher temperatures. You know, there's another attribute to these things. The white dwarfs had higher temperatures. So they're, yeah. they're apparently going to follow up uh, on these pre, uh, or the uh, pre uh, extremely low mass white dwarfs, in other words, the ones that are still losing mass, and the ELMs themselves to really try and find out the gaps uh, in our knowledge of how these things occur. But it's, it's, yeah. as you say, it's a great detective story uh, oh, with a yeah. good outcome. They've actually got yeah. a smoking gun there. Your, your confusion over white dwarf and non-white dwarf stars also explains why you're so bad at snooker, um, <laughs> always sinking the white. I, I do have a question. <laughs> I haven't played snooker for years, but I used to play a lot, Andrew. I uh, read a story the other day about a, a UK champion. Actually, he's a former world champion who was playing in the UK championships the other day uh, who fell asleep during a, a match. <laughs> Ended up losing 6-5 when he was in the lead 3-2. So, um, <laughs> Talk about being relaxed. You know, what? He, he blamed COVID because he was suffering extreme exhaustion oh, as an after okay. effect of having COVID in October. Oh, that so, could be it. Yeah. <laughs> That's by the by. But I, I thought of a question because uh, you, uh, it, you, you said our sun is most likely going to become a white dwarf. Mm. In fact, um, the article I'm looking at here, 
from phys.org, P-H-Y-S.org, says that our sun is 97% likely to become a white dwarf. So if it doesn't, what is the 3% chance chance of it becoming? Something else. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Look, it's not going to become a neutron star because it's not massive enough. Um, It could, you know, it's possible uh, just to have something that that collapses to a a remnant that is not electron degenerate, which is what you have to be to be a white dwarf, this state of the electrons jostling together and that's being the the only thing that holds the thing together. So it may be that its core could shrink, uh, but not to the level of being a white dwarf. It still would gradually cool down because it's it's got no more fuel to to keep burning um, Mm. and eventually would probably become... uh, what the white dwarfs eventually become, which is a black dwarf. <laughs> it's a star that's stone cold. But white dwarfs last a long time. It's a long period of um, stellar evolution, the white dwarf phase. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, maybe the way our planet survives into the future is we, we move away when it, when it becomes a large, nasty thing, and then when it shrinks back, we move the Earth closer. Seen it, seen it done in sci-fi. Yeah. Don't see why we can't do it real. Well, that's right. We've mm. we've just sent a space spacecraft to an asteroid to see if we can move that. So you know, think these things start small and yeah, uh, eventually get useful. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, anyway, this it's, it's a great discovery and uh, one that certainly uh, gives us some answers and and has turned theory into reality. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, if you're looking for something special for Christmas, do not forget the Space Nuts shop. I mean, you can get one of those. That's that's a tote bag hanging on my door in the back of my office. You can get uh, the Space Nuts cup, which is also up there. Oh, there it is. It's right next to the tote bag. You can get shirts. You can get stickers. Uh, and, if, of course, if you're a patron, which I talked about earlier, um, we send you presents. For uh, The longer you're with us, the bigger and better the present gets, right up to anybody who sticks with us for 100 years gets Fred's Maserati. So um, <laughs> oh, it'll be an oh. antique by then. <laughs> It'll take me 100 years to pay for it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Is that all? Uh, Anyway, uh, if you'd like to look at the Space Nuts shop, that's on our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io, where you can uh, click on the shop link and and see what sort of uh, things are available. Buy something for yourself or somebody that's hard to buy for and somebody you you know loves astronomy. Fred's new book's on there as well, Space Warp and uh, a few other things also. So it's well worth visiting. And while you're online, jump on uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram and, and follow us. We've got a, an official Space Nuts Facebook page and we now are on Instagram and I think we're, uh, we're getting uh, followers at a rate of knots. Spacenuts.io is the username on Instagram if you'd like to follow us there. Now, Fred, time for some questions. We've got audio questions today and the first one comes from Andy. Hi, Fred and Andrew. It's Sandy here again from Melbourne. Once again, my obsession with satellites continue. My questions this time are a bit of a what-if scenario. If we were to launch a deep space probe and place it into an orbit past the Oort cloud, one, is this possible? Two, if you had to design the mission, what areas of study would you concentrate the probe's instruments on? And three, do you think we could learn anything different than a similar probe orbiting closer to Earth? Thanks again for the great show. 
P.S. Andrew, I've started to listen to the Terranian Enigma, and it's great. Classic sci-fi and very engaging. Have a good one. Thanks, Andy. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Uh, it was it was fun to record, but uh, I hurt my I hurt my throat doing some of the alien voices. <laughs> I really did. And, uh, yeah, some of them um, are a bit weird, but uh, especially the characters known as the Borsch, they, they um, uh, nothing to do with German food. They were, uh, they were a, an evil race that I wrote into the story and, and, and they sounded like this and it really hurt to try and replicate that, um, what I thought they sounded like. But, uh, yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying the audio book. And I'll tell you, uh, I've almost finished editing up The Hitler Paradox uh, too many nationalities in it for me to tackle in terms of accents, so I've kept it fairly simple this time, mainly for self-preservation purposes. So I'll let you know when the audio version of the Hitler Paradox is out as well. Uh, now, um, yeah, what did Andy want to know? I've got no <laughs> yeah, idea. Deep, deep, deep Space Probe. Deep Space yeah. Probe. Actually, it was a um, bit hard to hear, Andy. I'm not sure quite whether the sound is coming through the normal channel uh, there, Andrew, but I did get the gist of his question. Uh, the... Um, Mission to the Oort Cloud or or to pass through the Oort Cloud. It's a really interesting question. Uh, and in a sense, we're doing it already because Voyager will one day pass through the Oort Cloud, Voyager being, uh, oh, there, there are two Voyagers, the, the two most distant uh, human-made objects, Voyager 1, uh, if I remember rightly, uh, somewhere in the region of 21 or 22 billion kilometres away from Earth. Um, but the Oort Cloud is much, much further than that. So, <clears throat> you know, we'll be passing through the Oort Cloud maybe in 500 years or something like that. It's, it is that far away. It's um, well on the way to the next nearest star. And the other thing about the Oort Cloud is that it is very rarefied. It's not dense in terms of um, how there being lots and lots of objects there per cubic kilometre or whatever. Uh, and in fact, that's <clears throat> really the reason. It's this sort of um, rarefied nature of the fact that you've got uh, – icy objects which are separated by huge distances. That's really the rationale for why we think there is an Oort cloud, because you've got this region of space where the density of objects is not high enough for them to interact with one another and form planetesimals like they did in the inner solar system uh, and go on to make protoplanets. Uh, the, so, the, the you know, the the uh, if I can put them that way, the, proto, uh, the planetesimals, the small objects that potentially could be formed by these lumps of ice in the Oort cloud just never really happen because they're, uh, they're too far apart. Uh, so um, the Oort cloud in many ways is a big um, sphere of nothingness. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, the, the Voyager spacecraft uh, is well equipped to, to to make measurements, or it would be if its batteries were still running by the time it crossed the Oort cloud. And of course, it'll be way out of uh, of reception of range of our radio uh, radio transmitters by then. Uh, so, I, I suppose if you did want to explore the Oort cloud directly, it would be a spacecraft that has a very long life and very powerful radio transmitters that you're going to be able yeah. to receive signals from for a long time. I suppose we're going to have to become more reliant on observation platforms like James Webb 
which is almost due to be launched. Yeah, and- that's right. So it will be terrestrial observations that tell us more mm. about the Oort cloud. We we don't think we've ever directly seen an Oort cloud object, uh, you know, apart from long period comets which come in to the inner solar system and we think they're Oort cloud objects that have been disturbed out of their orbits. Um, but observing one directly, some of the f- uh, what are called ET. Um, uh, ETNOs, extreme trans-Neptunian objects. Uh, some of those objects are thought, these are very, very distant icy asteroids, are thought to be possible candidates for being on the inner part of the Oort cloud, but we really, we really don't know with any certainty. So I'm a bit confused. We talked about uh, Voyager uh, recently sort of getting beyond the effect of the sun, which means it's uh, it's beyond our solar system technically uh, or, or beyond the influence of the sun. What's the, I can't think of the name of that point. Um, it's a, it's the heliosphere. The heliopause. Yeah. So, um, and it, and it's got so much further to travel to get the Oort to the Oort cloud. Yes. Um, and that your, your, your point is well made because a lot of people get confused by this. And we often see, you know, headlines saying, uh, Voyager has left the solar system. Uh, and what it means is that it has left the sun's magnetic influence. The um, the magnetic uh, the region of the sun or the magnetic influence uh, area of the sun is what we call the, the heliosphere. And you're right, the heliopause is the edge of it. But the gravitational influence of the sun goes on much, much further than that. <clears throat> so um, when you talk about the edge of the solar system, really... It's not where Voyager is. That's that's still the you know our backyard, but it mm. is the edge of the sun's magnetic influence. So okay. um, it, it's combined. You, you know, I think um, you've got to separate these two. The gravitational influence, which is what holds the Oort cloud in place, is much much greater. So would it stand to reason that even though we don't know much about the Oort cloud or have seen any Oort cloud objects? that there would be multiple Oort clouds in multiple solar systems? Yeah, I think, I think you know, you might find every solar system has its Oort cloud, uh, mm. if I can put it that way. So if we can see exoplanets, why can't we see their Oort clouds? Because the objects within it are, are just tiny. You know, they're, they're, right. their sizes are measured in handfuls of kilometres, if that, um, rather than planet-sized I'm being very journalistic today. Oh, you're doing well. Yeah, you're, but Andrew, as always, you are asking all the right questions. <laughs> uh, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Andy. Lovely to hear from you. I'm glad you're enjoying the Tyrannian Enigma. Now we're heading off to New Zealand. Hi, Andrew and Fred. This is Matthew Willey from Palmerston North in New Zealand. I'm just wanting to ask a question about dark matter and black holes. Just kidding. Just kidding. It's about <laughs> angular momentum. Um, now, I know that the moon and the earth are losing angular momentum, and this is because of tides. Um, and that is making the moon move further and further away from the earth over time. But I've got it in my head that, yeah, if we actually removed all of the angular momentum from the system, uh, the moon would drop out of the sky and land on the earth and make you very unpopular. So there seems to be a contradiction between no angular momentum causing the earth and the moon to move towards each other rather quickly 
and um, just reducing angular momentum, making the Earth and Moon move further and further apart. So I'm just wondering if you could talk me through that. That would be really helpful because it's doing my head in. Thank you very much, you guys. Love the show. Keep doing what you're doing. Very much appreciated from where I am. Yeah, uh, well, you're in New Zealand, so that's understandable. Uh, thank you, Matthew. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and, and leave the jugs to me. Speaking of which, uh, the, the reason, the real reason that the moon is moving away from us is because of Alan Shepard. Now, when he was on the moon, he hit a couple of golf balls and he hit a massive slice, and that's why the moon's spinning away from us. It's simple as that. <laughs> Otherwise, it could be something else, I think, Fred. <laughs> it might be something else, yeah. So, um, the, yeah, I think, look, Matthew's question is a great one. Um, mm. the, the angular momentum itself is actually conserved. Uh, we, are con we conserve the angular momentum, uh, and that's kind of what allows things to keep on spinning. Um, it, and it's actually also what allows us, that principle of the conservation of angular momentum is what allows us to work out what the solar system was like in the distant past. Uh, because we know that the momentum energy, the rotational energy of the Earth and Moon is essentially conserved. Now, there are tweaks on it um, at a much lower level, and that's where this tidal friction comes in. Um, and so it's uh, if, if you... Forget about the loss of angular momentum and just think that that is being conserved and that's all good. But the tidal friction clearly has a, an effect, a very low-level effect on it, um, which, which is temporary, I have to say, because tidal friction will eventually stop. Um, and so the, and the, the thing will keep on spinning. The moon will, not, will never, ever fall to the Earth because of a loss of angular momentum. That angular momentum is there forever. That's uh, good news. Let me explain why uh, the Earth is why the Earth is pushing the moon away, if I can put it that way. Um, and it, it comes about because of the tide. So the the moon raises tides on the Earth, and uh, we've all seen diagrams of the Earth with this strange oval bulge around it, which are, are the effects of the tides, uh, and that is called the tidal bulge, and it's not just the oceans. The Earth itself does the same thing. Uh, but uh, you, you naturally expect that tidal bulge, that oval of material, to be aligned directly with the moon uh, because it's the moon that's pulling it. But actually, it's not because the Earth is rotating underneath it, so the bulge moves slightly eastwards, um, uh, because of the Earth's rotation, and that's where the friction comes in, because it's the friction uh, between the well, the oceans and the rocks of the Earth, and the and the rotation itself uh, that is causing that bulge to uh, to move eastwards. Now, the eastward move of the bulge has a tiny effect back on the Moon, because it's changing the gravitational pull of the Earth, and what it's doing is giving the Moon a slight gravitational uh, acceleration. Uh, it's pulling on the moon uh, and, and increasing its velocity. And as soon as you increase the velocity of something in, in orbit, what it does is moves away. And so that's why the moon is drifting away. And the energy is going into the rotational energy of the Earth itself. That is that the Earth is slowing down. So that's where the energy pushing away the moon is coming from. It's coming from the Earth's rotation, not the angular momentum of the Earth-Moon system. Um, 
Uh, now, now, eventually I said tidal friction will stop because the ultimate end product of this scenario is that the Earth uh, slows down so that it rotates in the same time as it revolves, sorry, as the moon revolves around it. Uh, and you've got this situation where the Earth and the moon face one another uh, permanently, and that will stop the tides and it will stop tidal friction. And so that scenario of the Earth and Moon facing one another, I think it, the period would be 43 days, the day and the month would both be 43 days, uh, that will go on ad infinitum unless there is some external disturbance to the Earth moon. And, and that's due to happen next week, Karen. <laughs> Probably next week plus maybe 15, 20, 30 billion years. Maybe. Right. Yeah. And and you know, hypothetically, what would it be like to live on the planet? Yeah, very weird. Uh, with yeah. A, with a could, could we live on the planet? Well, the thing is, it'll never happen because by then the sun's done its thing and oh, of course, it's, you know, become a, a red dwarf. Uh, sorry, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, bit, so we don't care. It doesn't a, matter. A red giant star. Uh, no, it doesn't matter because the, the, we'll we'll have probably been. Um, absorbed into the sun's atmosphere by then anyway. Yeah, yeah it's well, all great stuff. Know, so <laughs> if humanity survives, we, we won't be here, I imagine. We'll have found another way to get yeah, away. I and think so, yeah. Somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have we'll have solved all those issues of folding space and yeah, all of that. Other planets to live in. You know, I I thought that question was going to give me a headache and I had my ibuprofen ready to go. <laughs> but it's actually quite a a, a simple explanation really. It it, it makes uh, Makes absolute sense to me. So I'm guessing that the more astute amongst us have figured, I've gone, yeah, of course. Yes, absolutely. Anyway, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great, it is a great question from Matthew, though. And I take his Maybe. point, um, but the angular, angular momentum is conserved. That's the bottom line. Indeed. All right. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for uh, sending that in. We, we love these challenging questions. Uh, and thanks, Andy, and thanks to everybody who contributed. Uh, thanks to our supporters uh, all over, uh, our sponsors, of course, but uh, our listeners. I've, I've been getting some great feedback uh, from my terrible dad joke last week about <laughs> um, the earth being flat because the water's uncarbonated. <laughs> Uh, that's been shared via social media and gone ballistic. And I, I, I can't claim the joke. I saw it somewhere else. Somebody else thought of it, but you know, it, it's a great one to share. And I'm glad I could give it momentum. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, you gave it a bit of fizz, actually. That's what okay, you did. I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, and, and and thanks for the feedback. I, I love hearing from people, and and I quite often get messages. Uh, and and once again, I'll mention uh, our um, social media platforms if you want to follow us there, and the Space Nuts podcast group, which is a user created. Uh, Facebook page where you can all get together and chat. Don't forget that one as well. It is well worthwhile uh, getting together so you can um, share your pictures. I know Andy loves to share his um, his pictures, uh, his astronomical photographs on online. He's done some spectacular work too, I must add. Uh, that brings us to the end. Fred, thank you so much. Great pleasure, Andrew. As always, we'll talk again next week, I hope. We will. And don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that via our website through the AMA tab, uh, spacenutspodcast.com. Click on the AMA tab and you will be able to send us an audio question or just send us a note. Some people just like to make comments. You can do that through the text interface all on our website. 
thanks as always to Fred. Uh, without him, this would be half as good. And <laughs> it probably wouldn't even be that good. Might be twice but, as uh, good. <laughs> uh, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for joining us. Looking forward to your company on yet another episode. Probably next week. See you then. Bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.